Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, we are in Mark chapter 4 today, and uh, we have two more chapters left after this. And Mark chapter 14 is the longest chapter in the book of Mark. Uh, which means it's literally going to be impossible to preach through all of it. And so we're just going to honestly get started in the very first section, and I would encourage you uh, to take some time this week to go through Mark chapter 14. Read it slowly. There's so much in there. I mean, we could spend weeks and weeks just in this chapter. Um, So I I would just, just saying, we're we're just going to scratch the surface here, the beginning part of the chapter, but it's worth your time to meditate on the gospel and the scripture. And this is, this is a story that is, is beautiful. It's a story that is um, provocative to like our understanding of how to respond to Jesus and how to worship him. And, and so we're going to start reading in verse 1. It says, that Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So a couple couple of notes was going on here. Jesus is uh, arrived into Jerusalem. And it's Passover week. Passover was both a night, but it was also a week of preparation. And so he would be staying at this house in Bethany, which was about a mile or two just east of Jerusalem, kind of walk down the hill and then up into Jerusalem. And then he would retire at night in this place. The text tells us this is at the home of Simon the leper. We know from uh, kind of historical culture that this was a, must have been a healed leper because you were not allowed to have meals with someone who had leprosy. And so most people believe that Simon at some point was healed most likely by Jesus and thus began the relationship. Simon, his household had uh, three children who show up later in the story, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And they keep kind of getting woven throughout the different uh, gospel narratives. But at this particular moment, it seems to kind of reach a climax in the story, specifically within Mary's emotions, that she just can't seem to contain herself anymore. So they're reclining at dinner, 
We don't know what they're talking about, what's going on. But all of a sudden, Mary enters into the room, which would have broken kind of cultural norms. Uh, a meal like that would have only been preserved for the men in the group. And she comes in, and then she takes this flask of alabaster, which is a white stone, and she breaks it, and then she proceeds to pour the perfume on Jesus' head. And at this point, there is just probably things firing off in people's minds in that room. If you could imagine a place like that, first thing you're thinking is, why is Mary here? Why is she entering in the room? You see that she's holding this alabaster jar, and you know what's in it. And inside it, it says that it was worth 300 denarii. And because Jews don't work on the Sabbath, 300 denarii means a year's salary. So there is a year's worth of salary. Most people believe it's about 12 to 16 ounces of this ointment. And as it's broken, it's poured out onto Jesus' head. And then in John's gospel, it says that it was poured out on his feet. And then Mary proceeds to wipe it with her hair. And so the question is, well, was it poured on his head or was it poured on his feet? And the most likely um, explanation of this is that there was just so much ointment that it literally just covered his body that from his head to his toe, he was covered um, in this very expensive perfume. And that people at, at the sight of this, at probably even the smell of this, and recognizing what's going on, it says the disciples, not just Judas, but all of them were indignant. The Greek word here means that they were flaring their nostrils. Um, so if you can almost like remember like old cartoons of like bullfighting, like can they get really angry? This is, this is essentially what's happening in the room. That there's this, this anger. How, how, why would you do this? Like this, is, this would never be what you would use this ointment for. And even if you wanted to give it over to, to Jesus, wouldn't you just go and take this year's worth of salary, sell it, and then be able to disperse it to the Jews? Most likely, that, that ointment would have been used for a few different things. Number one is that would have been some sort of family heirloom. It would have been passed down. Most likely wasn't, didn't just belong to her. And if it did, that would have been the gift that she would have been saving as a, as a dowry, as a bride price for her to get married. And so regardless, this had dramatic ramifications for her and for her family. But this perfume in particular was used for burial. And so as, as this is going on, and, and Jesus can tell in all the commotion that the indignation is happening within his disciples, he stops them and ultimately rebukes them and says, Look, listen, what she's done is beautiful. She's done a beautiful thing. And kind of speaks to their objections, says, listen, you, you will always have the poor. You should serve them, serve them all the time. This is a unique time in the story of humanity. And what she's done is beautiful. And then he goes on to say, as long as this gospel is preached, we will tell her story. And so I wanted to just kind of take a look at, the, at what's happening here. And unpack it a little bit and to be able to ask ourselves a question, where do we find ourselves in the midst of this story? Um, what about Mary's response, her extravagant, worshipful, sacrificial response? How does that speak into our lives? A couple of things to, to consider 
is one that just prior to this event, we see Mary show up in John's gospel when Lazarus, her brother, passed away. Jesus was told about it by the time he got there. It had been four days. Martha comes up to Jesus and just says, Lord, if you, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus gives her this beautiful, profound response that I am the resurrection and the life. Mary goes and hears that Jesus is there and she comes and says the same thing. It says that she's weeping and everyone's with her and they're just mourning. It says, Jesus, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. It makes me wonder if they're thinking about their, their dad possibly being healed by Jesus. Like, we know you can do this. And at this point, Jesus doesn't give Mary an answer. It just says that he weeps with her, enters into her pain, and then just simply asks the question, where is he buried? The story continues that he goes to the tomb and calls Lazarus out. And, and there's something about that story that we find later in John's gospel that's telling the same story in Mark's gospel that, that Mary's so overwhelmed, probably thinking about her dad and definitely thinking about her brother just being raised from the dead, that there's something that just comes over her that's just like, what, what do I do? How do I, how do I thank Jesus for what she's done in my life? How do I express my worship and my praise for what he's done? And she looks around and she finds the most expensive thing, the most valuable thing, and she just goes and says, this belongs to Jesus. And she goes in this unconventional way and she just breaks it open, doesn't care who's around, the cultural norms that she's breaking, the expense that it's required that it's acquiring of her and her family, and she just pours it out over Jesus. And everyone is so shocked by her worship, so shocked by her love that they can't comprehend it. Why? Well, because in that room, there were people who had not accessed that level of gratitude yet. And so their, their lens in which they interpreted worship to Jesus was still very pragmatic. It's like, does this make sense? We can sell this, use this for the poor. We can do this. And I think that there's something beautiful about that because it challenges us in our own worship for Jesus. It challenges us for us to, number one, to, to just recall what exactly has Jesus done for us? And what does that mean? What kind of response does that bring out of you? Because for Mary, it no longer was something that was pragmatic. It no longer had a sense of utility. It no longer had a sense of strategy. All of a sudden, it just became extravagant worship. And in that sense of absolute surrender to Jesus, Jesus calls that kind of response beautiful. So she's done a beautiful thing for me. And I would just begin to think and pray this week, Lord, what would it look like for us to be a community of people? What would it look like for me to live in such a way that you look at the response of my life and call it beautiful? Not, yeah, that makes sense. Or that's a good strategy. But there's something there that is just over the top because there's something about Mary's disposition that quite frankly people don't get. And maybe you relate to this. Maybe you're like a Mary. There's another story where, um, where she's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha gets mad at her. She's like, what are you doing sitting there? And, and again, Jesus stands up for Mary. And, and maybe you're just that personality where it, you, you just feel so much and you want to give so much. And sometimes maybe you even feel like you are too much. But I think there's something about Mary that just 
Jesus puts his finger and says, no, 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 no. There's something that she's contributing to this situation, the story that's being told, that should, should not be rebuked, but should be elevated. And I think that there's, it goes hand in hand. It wasn't just her personality. It was something about what she went through that drew out the sense of worship. I love what Elizabeth Kerbel Ross says. She's the, she's the therapist who um, developed the five stages of grief. Uh, she says this, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. What she had gone through carved within her something that was not just surface level, but something that was deep. Richard Foster says, the desperate need today is not for great number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. And so there's this sense that out of, the, out of her recognizing what Jesus had done, not only in resurrecting her brother, healing potentially her father, but even this fact that he came near to her in her grief resulted in extravagant worship. And I think if we can catch a glimpse of what Jesus has done, it will do the same thing in us, regardless of our personality. It will turn us into something beautiful and what we give to Jesus as something beautiful. Um, I was just thinking of some examples of what extravagant worship could look like. I was thinking about Zoe, who's our oldest now. She's in high school, which makes me feel very old. Um, when she was young, probably like six or seven, uh, saw one of those um, like kid electric cars that you could drive around. I remember like dreaming to have one of those as a kid. And so we were walking around. She saw one. I'm like, you can buy it. And she's like, how much is it? I'm like, it's like 350 bucks. And so for a seven or eight year old, I mean, this is insane. So she saved all of, she asked for money for her birthday, saved all of that, would do chores around the house and just worked and worked and worked diligently and saved up her money to buy this car. And one day, and she, and she was, I think, $20 away. And one Sunday, she was in church and someone came and started speaking about um, a clinic that helps women who feel like they have no other option but to have an abortion. And they come alongside these women and just provide them an alternative. The clinic was, is called Alternatives, and they help them provide funding, cribs, diapers, medical care, therapy, support. I mean, it's just an incredible organization. And Zoe, in her seven-year-old, eight-year-old self, is watching this. And she comes home and she says, Mom and Dad, I, I want to give all of my money to these women and to these babies. And to be honest, there's a part of me that was just like, I mean, you've been saving up for months for this car. And there's that, there's that pragmatic sense. I'm like, does this make sense, Zoe? And then at the same time, I just, I remembered this story. And I remembered, I'm like, this is extravagant. And so we just commended her. We're like, okay, Zoe, if this is what you want to do with your money, then that's great. And she took her money. I remember bringing it to children's ministry. And she just gave it all to them for these babies and for these women. Um... I, told, I ended up telling this story years ago uh, after she had done that at her previous church and someone heard it and showed up at her doorstep one day and bought her the car. And it was so cute. 
a little angel Zoe just comes in. She's like, see, I, I knew God could do it. I knew God could do it in just her own little frame of just like, but this extravagant sense of like, this, this is what this is for. Um, I, I love on, on Sunday nights at our 4 p.m. gathering in Encinitas, uh, the Sun family is there. Marcus and Kelly always sit up front and they bring their daughter, Hannah. Hannah's about five years old. And when worship's going on, she just dances. She's like wearing these dresses and she twirls and she jumps. And there's something about how she responds in worship that I, I just, I know. I'm like, that's it. Like, that's the thing. Like, that's the pure, extravagant worship where she's not just trying to think, do I lift my hands here or here? One hand up, two hands up. My hands are tired. Like, it's, she's not like, you know, should I kneel? Like, that's kind of weird. I don't want people to look at me. She's just dancing, just extravagant dancing. And, I, and as I, I look at both examples, they're just children. They, they, they kind of get it. And there's something about Mary that was childlike. Like, I know this doesn't make sense, but I don't care because what Jesus has done for me. And so I want us as a church just to come alongside this example because Jesus points her out and says, we will talk about her as long as this gospel is being preached. And for her to look at that example and say, what has God done in your life and what sort of response does that draw? How can you begin to start thinking, how do I live out in a sense of generosity and compassion? How do I even express my worship with my body on a Sunday gathering or in an open table that may feel odd for me? Because again, we're trapped in our, as the older we get, the more we feel trapped into our own things and just break out of it. Like just find yourself overwhelmed with gratitude for what Jesus has done. And as, as we do this, as I'm reading the text, there, there's a part of me that wonders, why was this the way Mary chose to express her gratitude? Why this level of extravagance? And yeah, and yeah, there's some reason that just makes sense. It was costly, but there's also some Old Testament tie-in to what oil on the head represented and what anointing represented. There's four things that we find uh, in the Old Testament. Number one is that whenever there was a new king, they would be anointed first. Number two Whenever a priest had to be consecrated and made holy, he was anointed. Thirdly, oftentimes oil was a use of medicine. It would be used for healing. And lastly, if oil was poured out, oftentimes it was in preparation for burial. Someone had died. What's fascinating is all four of these themes in the Old Testament align with who Jesus is. He's, he's coming to his coronation on the cross. He's being anointed. He's the high priest, set apart, advocating for us. He's the one who's the great physician, who brings healing for us all. But the one that Jesus noted, says, she's preparing me for burial. This is what this is about. And I want to end the message not focusing so much on Mary's extravagance, because it's beautiful and we should talk about it. Jesus told us we should. But it's what happens in the, the next verses. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So in this same room, separated by a couple nights, you have Mary's outrageous, extravagant display of love and surrender. And a couple nights later, you have Jesus as extravagant as that was, given even more outrageous and extravagant display of his love. When he passed out that bread, he said, this is my, this is my body. It's gonna be broken for you. And he passed around that common cup, says, this is the blood of my new covenant. I think there's something about us that needs to remember that no matter how extravagant our love and surrender will ever be, it will never match the extravagance of Jesus' surrender on the cross for you. And that's the, the beauty of the gospel is because when we recognize the depth, the level of sacrifice, the cost of what the cross represents, all of a sudden, the question is not, isn't this too much? But the question says, will this ever be enough? Will this ever be enough? Will I ever be able to worship hard enough, give generously enough, love compassionately enough to ever be able to come close to the self-initiated sacrificial love that Jesus displayed for us on the cross that he points to in communion. He says, do this often. For as often as you do this, you are proclaiming the death of Christ. You're telling the story that no matter how extravagant we could ever, ever respond to Jesus' love, it was self, it was his initiation first. It was his love first. And the magnitude of his love could never be fathomed. And that's the essence of the gospel. Are we called to live as worshipful, generous, compassionate people? Yes, but not because we're obligated to or because God's trying to get us to check some boxes, but because we're just responding in gratitude. Not only did we see Lazarus resurrect, we saw Jesus resurrect, and we see that same power that resurrected him placed inside of you by the Holy Spirit that anything in this life can never separate you from the love of God because we know that even death itself cannot stop the end of the story, which is resurrection life. And this is the beautiful message that Jesus presents to us in Mark chapter 14. So I just want to pray. I want to pray that you and I would not only be able to look at our circumstances, like look at how much Jesus has done, which I'm sure he's done a lot. And I also know that we probably would never even know how much he's done. But would we look to the cross? Maybe for you in your house or in your apartment, or maybe go grab some, some bread or some grape juice or some wine and hold those elements and just rest in this space of, oh, Jesus. Would my life reflect a proper response to the love that you've given me? Teach me to do that. Empower me, Holy Spirit. I can't do that on my own. And would we as a community continue to open ourselves up to extravagant worship and love for God? Let's pray. 
Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the example of Mary who responds accurately. Help us do that, Lord. Help us to not overthink or overanalyze. Help us to not worship, give, love in a way that's overly programmed or strategic when, Lord, you're just asking for extravagant response. And Lord, we rest in your love. We recognize that we have no ability to love you unless we recognize you've loved us first. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.